Digital 410 proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts, Don Abernathy, Jeff Kopsetta, and Henry Sledge. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based, that's an important message for tonight, World War II-based podcast. Henry is still out working on his book. Jeff's got things going on. That's okay. We're going back old school. We're going back with a one-on-one episode. And I said tonight, an important part of our theme is base because tonight we're going to go back before World War II. We're going to go back to the Great Depression. And some interesting facts I found out through watching videos and then watching a semi-historical fiction movie called Amsterdam, which I thought was very interesting and brought me up to speed on what I thought was fictional until I do what I always do, which is get out the Google box and start Googling characters from this movie. And I found out, yes, the movie is fake, but the through line was based on true events and true events that I was surprised I'd never really heard of, considering I've been running a World War II-based podcast since 2018, and I have been reenacting since, oh, 11 years now. So I did what I always do. I need to find somebody who knows more than me on this particular subject, and I found a gentleman. (laughs) Colin, welcome to the show. First and foremost, let me just put this out there. For those of you familiar with Mr. Colin D. Heaton, yes, he knows a lot about aviation. No, we're not going to talk about it tonight because Jeff would kill me because, as you guys know, Jeff is a huge World War II aviation fan, and the fact that Colin did some uh, consulting on Masters of the Air, we won't get into that tonight, but perhaps if uh, everything goes according to plan tonight, we'll have Colin on a future episode with Jeff and Henry, and we'll talk World War II aviation. But right now, we're going to focus on the Great Depression, shortly. More importantly, the Bonus Army March, and then what has known become known to be as the quote-unquote business plan. But Colin, how are you doing tonight, sir? Oh, pretty good. Uh, I appreciate just, uh, just working on a few projects. What are you working on now? I know you just released a book earlier this year, which was Above the Pacific, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm working on uh, a few film projects right now with some people. Uh, put things together and getting contacts ready for investor meetings, things like that. Fantastic. I guess maybe uh, when things come to fruition, uh, you can come on and uh, promote those. But give our audience a little bit more history about you other than the fact that you write fantastic books. You have quite a library of books, and we will include all those over on WTSP World War II. We'll put a link to you can see and purchase Collins books, but give our audience a little background on you. I understand you not only served in the Army, but the Marine Corps. Is that correct? Yeah, I uh, served three years in the Army, got out, and a friend of mine was a recruiter for the Corps, and he suggested that I go back to work. And uh, so I took him up on his offer, and I did. So I spent a few years there, and then after that, I went to to college, and then graduate school, then postgraduate school, began teaching and writing and, and all during those years, I would travel between Europe and the U.S., and I was always interviewing, well, Africa, but I was interviewing people, mostly World War II vets, but a couple, I got a couple of World War I veterans and they were still alive, so. You're you're the few who were lucky enough to, to get those. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I got two Germans and uh, three Americans and one British gentleman. And the fact that we... You know, film was at such an early adaptation back then. Clearly, obviously, we don't have half as much as the context and content we do in World War II. And so for you to get the verbal memories from those gentlemen probably meant a lot to you and provided tremendous 
value to you and your colleagues. Well, yeah, but I did it as a hobby for, for 20, 30 years because some people collect stamps, some people collect coins, comic books. I collected people's stories. I collected interviews. That's what I, That was what I wanted to do. And uh, when I was in high school, uh, well, actually, I was in middle school when I was able to meet uh, General Omar Bradley and uh, talk to him. And we had a pretty good short conversation, not an interview. But uh, and then later on, I became acquainted with a few authors who I had written to courtesy of their publishing companies. And uh, one became a very good friend. Uh, Colonel Raymond F. Tolliver, who introduced the world to the German fighter pilots, but he had good contacts. And uh, so I began writing letters and had phone calls. And over a period of time, I was able to get together with most of these gentlemen and some women and uh, start compiling a library, which I never really thought I'd be writing books about these people until I found out that, uh, you know, some of these books are pretty popular. But I also found out it was the most difficult thing other than a blind man probing a minefield was getting a book published. <laughs> so, uh, but I, once I cracked the secret and had a great, had a couple of good agents, uh, my, my, my latest agent I'm still with for 15, 17 years, I guess now. Congratulations on that. So once you have a good agent and you've got a decent product, uh, it's just a matter of finding the right publishing company. And that's a huge thing, whether it's, being an author, a musician, an actor, an athlete, those industries in and of itself, anytime you attach the word entertainment or um, money to it, there are so many people looking for a quick way to scam others. And as you said, once you find a good agent, you, you got to hold on to them with all their worth and just trust them. They trust you. You got to build that relationship. And once you get a good one who's not out to you know, pull a fast one, especially when you're up and coming, you know, you're young and to whatever your particular industry is, it's just like anything else. There's always that those people out there looking to take advantage of others. And once you find a good one, you just got to hold on to them. Oh yeah. And I got lucky because my friend, who's also my, my entertainment lawyer, uh, knew her and she had represented some very prestigious, uh, prestigious authors in the past. Uh, she was Eric Hamill's agent for a while. Oh, okay. And so she carried a lot of weight, uh, in the uh, in the military history, all she all she represents is military history. So she specializes, and uh, and we we've had a great working relationship. So well, that's part of the reason why Henry can't be here tonight. I'm not sure if you're aware, but Henry has basically recovered when his father put out uh, with the old breed the original manuscript. I think was roughly 638 640 pages, but the publisher said, "Hey, we're only interested in about 350." And so some of that context went on to be China Marine, but a lot of it has never been seen, never been published. And so Henry's actually taken his father's, the remaining part of that manuscript, and he's reworking on it and adding his sense experience with his father post-war and some of his father's tellings and memories of it. And he's actually working on a book in an effort to get his father's unpublished work out there into the world. So you know, fans of Eugene Sledge can get more content from his father. And so that's why he's kind of stepped away from the show. He's still part of the show, but he's on hiatus just because he's working a full-time job and trying to get that book out. And as you know, getting a book out, especially when it's going to be your first one, it takes a lot of time to get that just right. Well, I mean, the good thing is, I mean, he's working off his dad's work, which Eugene Sledge's uh, memoir is like legendary in the yeah, Marine Corps. And uh, it's like absolute, it's required reading. And, uh, and 
if you, I give you an example, that's not that's not that unusual because I'm going to release the second edition of my book, The Star of Africa, because I had a word count restriction. I had to be well below 100,000 words, but I had like 130 some odd thousand words worth of material. They said, no, you got to trim it down. So how do you how do you cut out great stuff and still tell the story? So I did the best I could. But now that I have a new publisher, in fact, uh, Dale Dye and his wife, Julia, their publishing company, Warrior Publishing, uh, are going to take care of it and get the second edition out. Congratulations on that. Is it... Is it easier when you're, I don't want to say easier, but is it the process quicker when you go back and pull up material you had already written or is it harder because now you got to figure out how to take that content that's already had the beginning and the end cut off of it and then retell it in a new way, but still get to that part of the timeline that was cut out of the original book? Well, for me, it was really easy because I had the original manuscript and all I had to do is edit the original manuscript that uh, I kept a copy of the long version and I trimmed down the short version for the for the first edition book that came out in 2012 but I still had the long version so I didn't have to do any extracurricular work on that it was already there I just had to make sure it it had a better edit and then I had more information that I gathered from over the years uh, from a gentleman in Australia whose uncle was killed by the subject of the book The Star of Africa and I managed to get some stuff from him that I also wanted in the book but what I left out of the first edition was a lot of interview interview material that I had with a lot of the uh, Allied pilots, Australians, South Africans, Canadian, uh, and even other Germans, and expanded interview material that really told the story of, of Hans Marseille because they either fought against him or they flew with him, they knew him, and uh, so it just it, it, the stories. It's a more well-rounded version of that that man's life and the people he knew and the people who were involved because now you have a broader picture. And I'm sure that when he releases the additional unpublished material from 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 his father's book, it's going to be a more complete picture of what he wanted to say. Well, you're the perfect person to ask. Clearly, you wrote the original manuscript in 2012. I'm assuming it took you a few years of research, but clearly the internet has come a long way, and people who, since 2012, more and more analog documents have probably been digitized, put into databases. Ha- did you find that when you're working on the the material that you collected in 2012 and you researched, and now that you're you're fine-tuning it, and I'm assuming you probably went out and do, do, did some additional research, did you find that you're finding stuff that you weren't aware of back then just because more content is being digitized and put made more readily available on the internet? A couple of things that were new to me that I did not know had survived the war, but I didn't really have to do a lot of digging for them because a lot of my historian friends loved the book and they want to see the full story told. And Robert Tate, uh, Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Tate, he's retired now, but uh, he wrote a book on Hans Joachim Marseille, which I thought was a great book, and then I, mine came out. So we were competing books with the same subject, <laughs> but uh, but Bob Tate, uh, but Bob Tate uh, really helped out with some information, and uh, an Australian researcher named Nick Hector, he's become a friend. He helped out with a lot of additional material that I did not have access to because I've not been to Australia, so. Really, a lot of the stuff that's online, a lot of it you can't trust unless it is from an archive. But I spent so much time in the archives in Germany and in Britain and in France and Italy and uh, going through documentation 
that uh, and Canada that uh, it was nice to have corroborating material from other sources, you know, and it, we, 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 my problem that I like to solve is mysteries and mysteries I like to solve is what Bob Tate does and Nick Hector does and I did. And we would like to, if there was an air combat involving a German or an American British pilot, whoever, and he shot down somebody, how much luck are we going to have finding out who that guy was he shot down? And that's what I became pretty good at. Bob's great at it. Nick's great at it. And I, and what I did over the years was I was able, if they were still alive, if I, most of my interviews were with the Germans, the Luftwaffe guys, but I give an example. I was, I interviewed Walter Kropinski the first time in with Steinhoff in 80, 84. And then around 2000, I managed to figure out, or 1999, I guess, I managed to figure out who this one particular uh, Soviet pilot was that Kropinski shot down. Wow. I found out he was still alive. And the story goes that Kropinski was in a big dogfight with Gunther Rahl and Hartmann and Steinhoff and Rabak. I mean, the legends of JG-52. And Kropinski had flamed this guy up. And uh, but he pulled alongside him, much like Marseille would do. And he motioned to the guy and Kropinski said to me, he was just a child. He looked like he was 15 years old. So he motions to the guy, go ahead and jump out. I'm not going to kill you. So the guy jumps out and and he remembered the aircraft markings and he put it into his after action report. And uh, and I was talking to a friend of mine in Russia who had fled Russia. He's not exactly on Putin's Christmas list. (laughs) Imagine not. Yeah, but he was a, uh, this was back in 97 and 98, and he was uh, a historian, Russian historian, and he said, uh, give me the information about that, the, the date, the time, and all that. And so we, after about a year or so, we cross-referenced, and I found out that this Ukrainian pilot was still alive, so I managed to get him to come to the Gemeinschaft Jagdflieger, because I would go you know, every year that I could to Germany for the uh, World War II reunion. And I managed to get uh, Kropinski to uh, meet the guy that he let live. And the guy showed up with his wife, his daughter, his son, three grandkids, a great grandchild. And uh, and the guy didn't speak German and Kropinski didn't, didn't speak, speak Russian, Russian. But but we had a Russian interpreter there. And uh, and my Russian is terrible. My German's pretty good, but my Russian's terrible. But Finally, Kropinski had told the guy, he said, well, I'm glad you lived because you have a beautiful family. And the guy broke down and cried and his wife cried and they hugged each other. He said, if you had killed me, I wouldn't have this one, this wonderful family. Yeah. I was going to say, you could probably cut the emotions in that room with a, you know, with a piece of cheesecake just because it had to be so thick. I mean, I could only imagine to be just a fly in the wall in that situation where you have two gentlemen who interacted with, with each other depend on when this reunion started anywhere between 60 to 85 years ago and then had their family, their children, their great grandchildren there. I just, I couldn't imagine. And that was great. I mean, there were so many stories like that, that I, I mean, Sabira Sakai, the Japanese ace, I mean, he finally got to meet the co-pilot of a DC three that he did not shoot down because he saw it was carrying women and children fleeing Indonesia. And uh, so he told us, he waved his other pilots off and said, you know, we're not going to shoot this guy down. You know, as civilians, we don't do that kind of thing. And, and then later on that, that KLM pilot uh, had showed up with uh, his family and met Subiru and, you know, and so these are the kinds of stories I I like to get out there. Like uh, one of the books I want to write 
uh, everyone can write about battles. I've written about battles. I've written about, you know, war crimes. I wrote a book called Occupation Insurgency. I interviewed the last living, what, 12 SS generals. Um, but I want to tell the stories uh, of the humanity of war. The, yeah. the guys, the guys who, who spent years trying to kill each other, but because they didn't lose their humanity, that they did something that would be totally abstract, abnormal, and probably get a few of them shot, but they did it anyway. Then that's what my book, The Star of Africa, was about, because Marseille shot down. He was credited with 158 aircraft, but uh, and he killed a lot of pilots, but that wasn't his intent. And But he ended up saving, mathematically calculating the guys he let bail out, the guys he allowed to crash land, and the guys that he allowed to become prisoners of war or uh, the people who were wounded that he couldn't get to, that he would fly to the enemy air base or write a note in perfect English and say, well, I, I sh your guy shot down here, these coordinates, go get him. Uh, he saved 17 lives that he could have taken, uh, but he didn't. And uh, to me, that's the best part of the story, other than the fact that he you know, really pissed off Hitler, Goering, Himmler, and Bormann and the rest of them during a piano concert where he played <laughs> jazz. But uh, the, the, the humanity stories, you know, yeah. there are so many. I've chronicled, I've got probably a hundred such stories. Uh, most people would, would, would be stunned to know that SS Lieutenant General uh, Paul Hauser and uh, Brigadier General, later at the end of the war, he's promoted Brigadier General Leon de Grel, the Belgian SS uh, commander of the Legion of Valonian, uh actually cleared an entire village in the Ukraine. And when they cleared the village, they found that the civilians came up out of these holes in the ground and they were talking to them and make a long story short. They they said, well, wh where is your priest? Because all the priests have been killed by the NKVD or sent to gulags. And so they had a priest in hiding and brought him out. So Gila and de Grel got permission from Hitler and Himmler to rebuild the church that had been damaged. So they rebuilt the church. They they had soldiers set all around the perimeter on a Sunday service so they could have their first church service since the Bolshevik Revolution. Wow. And this was in 1942. And uh, and I thought that was a pretty wild story. And I actually managed to meet uh, an older lady who was a teenage girl at the time who says, I remember those men because they said, come on in, come on in. We were thought they were going to take us into the building and burn us, burn yeah. us and shoot us. Now, they, Gila and uh, DeGrell and the other SS officers and some of the men sat down who were Catholics and they sat down and, and, and went through the service like everybody else. And then they made sure the food, a food truck showed up and gave the people food. And, uh, you know, and it's, it's just a wild story. And people don't really hear those stories. Well, speaking of stories that a lot of people don't hear, and we're definitely going to have you on for a follow up episode because um, I could clearly just wipe the table and just continue down this road. But I really want to get these stories across because Jeff and I was talking a few episodes back. Jeff has been reading a lot more on World War One. I. I just kind of fell into the depression. Just I started watching YouTube videos and and I, I came across the story of what happened with the the breaking up of the bonus army. But before we get there, let's go back a little bit. And from what I understand to try to simplify an, an unsimple history of what happened to cause the depression. The way I understand it in a very interesting documentary I watched, they kind of, they kind of compared when the stock market opened to the public. Cause prior to that, it was kind of just a rich man, you know, 
behind the scenes corporate thing. When the stock market opened up to the public and you start having all these stock traders, and now as a public everyday Joe, you could call one of these stock traders, buy some stocks. The stock market kind of blew up amongst the public, kind of like the internet did with us in the mid 2000s. Everybody's getting on chat rooms and this and that. And I was watching this documentary. They were saying, you know, they had ticker tapes in beauty salons, they had ticker tapes in, you know, offices and everywhere is ticker tapes and from what i understand when the stock market opened to the public the stock traders were basically selling stocks without actually collecting money when it first started yeah. they started collecting money and then they just basically start giving it out on credit because not only did the stock market up but the whole concept of buying things on credit um and the whole credit system opened up and so now you have people buying stocks on credit the stock Traders not collecting any cash for it because they know, well, I'm just going to take the cash when they sell us in two or three weeks. And so many people start doing this. Well, when no one's actually paying anything and there's no cash being handed over for this stuff, and then all of a sudden it's time to collect. Well, we didn't expect this. No one collected any cash when we we're selling all this stuff. Kind of sounds like the housing market of 2008. <laughs> I mean, it just the whole bubble just popped, right? Am I missing out on something there? No, you're pretty much right. The, the, the standard procedure was anyone who wanted to buy stock could put 10% down. The rest was basically taken on credit. And when you had you know, tens of millions of people, and bear in mind, this wasn't just in the U.S. This was all over the world. And people were not paying full value of the stock shares they bought. They were putting deposits down. The rest of it was given on credit. A lot of it was just given on uh, IOUs, not crazy as it sounds. Yeah. And then what it ended up being was the world's largest Ponzi scheme. Yeah. Because pretty soon, some of these businesses were, were, were kind of starting to fail. People were living beyond their means. They couldn't afford this new dishwasher. Well, not dishwasher. They didn't have them that. But like a washing machine or a car or whatever. A ringer People washer. Were buying, a ringer washer. People were buying things on credit. Well, when it came time to pay the bill, they wanted to cash their stock in. But you can't cash in a stock you haven't paid for. Yep. And, and pretty soon the whole house of cards fell apart. And uh and 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 J. Edgar Hoover was warned about this possibly happening. This I mean, people say, oh, the Great Depression, you know, October of nineteen twenty nine was this great great calamity that just happened overnight. No, it didn't. It happened over a decade. Yeah. And when it happened, it was it was foreseen. People like Joseph Kennedy, Rockefeller, those guys, they didn't lose money in the stock market because they saw what was happening. You know, they didn't lose it. They didn't lose their fortunes. Their fortunes were mostly invested over in still in, in European banks and ventures and things like that. But their domestic holdings were, were secured. They sold stock and got their money back, sat on it, and they just laughed their asses off collectively when everybody else bottomed out. And then because people needed money they would go to the banks to get their money well the banks had to pay <laughs> you know the woodward wilson created the federal reserve well you know uncle sammy got his cut yeah and people made the runs on the banks and people well, were locked out of the banks well the it, bank it, run it, thing it, in and of itself is kind of interesting because the stock market kind of crashed and they worked to kind of build it back up and it and it floundered for a bit and the bank run didn't happen right away it was a little bit further after. And yeah. the way the bank run, way I understand it from the documentary I watched, they kind of pinpoint it to one particular guy. Don't know the guy's name, but it's almost the modern day. 
it was almost like a pissed off customer on Twitter. Guy went in, said, hey, I don't like the way the wind's blowing. I want all my money. The bank says, well, we don't have all your money here, but we can transfer it over here. Come back Wednesday and we'll see what we can do. Well, the guy wasn't too happy about that in downtown New York, went outside, started running his mouth. Don't go in there. They ain't got your goddamn money. People start freaking out. They all start going in there. Everybody started demanding their money at one time. Well, newsflash, if you go to your bank now and say, hey, I need to withdraw $100,000, they're not going to be able to give you a sack of cash. They're going to say, hey, uh, we got to <laughs> either digitally transfer it. If you want money, first we're going to have the IRS wondering what you want to do with $100,000 in cash. But that aside, we're still going to have to, you know, we don't have it sitting in the safe. It's not there. And so everybody just went in and, once you had a whole lobby full of people not getting their cash when and when they wanted it, newspaper men got involved, radio men got involved, and it just spread across the nation, kind of like the movies from the 90s with the natural disaster or the, the bacteria of the day. They just showed that map where it's just getting big and redder and redder, and it just spread like wildfire. That's, that, that's true. And also, you know, people don't really understand that after World War One, Germany was crippled financially after World War One, they were already in a depression by 1920 that people were living on like $3 a week. Mm -hmm. And, but Germany had been the largest industrial power in Europe. Only the USA was an equal competitor, if not superior to German industry. Well, German industry was not able to produce what the Europeans wanted. The Europeans wanted more American production. Well, American production requires capital. How do you get capital? People invest. Well, if you invest in a company, you expect to get a return. Mm -hmm. Well, that money went into the banks. Well, if the money's not in the banks to pay your shareholders and you can't pay your employees, then the strikes were all over the place. I mean, iron workers, auto workers, you know, textile workers. I mean, people went on strike. Well, what? I haven't been paid in two weeks. I'm not going to go to work if I'm not getting paid. And then, of course, the strike breakers came out, you know, and tried to say, you have to go to work. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the turmoil was nuts. And I couldn't even imagine being alive at that time and having to deal with that either as an employer or as someone who was wanting a paycheck. Well, not only that, but you so, have you have these European markets. you got these worldwide markets who a lot of them deal with American capital. And America, the government's like, okay, we need cash. We need to start repatriating our cash we need to start bringing our cash that's overseas because unlike today where it's just a bunch of numbers in a digital bank account very few people actually deal with cold hard cash everybody dealt with cold hard cash and when it's not there they start recalling it and so now you have these other economies seeing a vacuum of the american currency that was in their system and it impacts them even more oh yeah sure i mean first of all the first person is going to feel the impact is the guy earning a paycheck. Mm -hmm. And when that doesn't occur, questions begin to be asked. And a guy goes to his bank, like you said, and the money, the bank says, well, we don't have your money here. Well, you, I, the average Joe is going to go, well, I put my money here. Why isn't it here? And when you have several million people asking that question, and if just half that number decide to take, uh, take action on it, then you have a real problem. Yeah. And, the government was not prepared for any of that at all. And the world paid for it because we were the financial center of the world even that long ago. New York 
Wall Street, the stock market. I mean, the world revolved around the U.S. dollar and U.S. industry and U.S. capital. So when U.S. capital faltered, there was no backup plan. Nobody had a backup plan. Everybody suffered. And the people who suffered the most were those in Central Europe who had already been suffering heavily because of the reparations clause of the Treaty of Versailles. So I would say the Treaty of Versailles was step one. Mm -hmm. The Great Depression was step two in getting Mussolini and Hitler elected. Yeah. The people don't realize they were elected in a democratic election. Not a, We are a representative republic. We're not a democracy. I hate when people say that. Yes, we're not a democracy. Too. We're not. But in, in a straight democracy, you can vote that bastard out with just one election. Yeah. And, and that is exactly what they did, man. They're like, wait a minute. These two guys are telling us they're going to take us out of the depression, give us jobs, homes, food, and employ us and educate our kids. And we're going to be able to live a better life. And the Weimar didn't do anything for us. The, the Italian government didn't do anything for us. So, yeah, that, that's a good option. So people reached for the lifeline that they could get. Same with FDR. Herbert Hoover had totally screwed the country. I mean, he I mean, he had totally destroyed the economy. And, he, and, and our national prestige was, was in tatters. Mm -hmm. Not as bad as what Biden's done now. But. But FDR, FDR ran on a platform of, hey, I'm not Hoover, yep. basically, and that was all it took. Well, that combined with a few other things. So now we have the, pan the pandemic. <laughs> I was on my mind thinking, well, something that sounds familiar. We had the Great Depression, uh, the Dust Bowl in 1930. So we already had farms and crops missing. So we already had people through the, the Midwest and the, the major farmlands hurting on food, which obviously the farmlands aren't producing farms for the larger cities. So prior to this you you know you had people in the larger cities who were buying these stocks they were living the high life but people in the midwest with the dust bowl crops are hard to come by um couldn't breathe and so everything just kind of came to a huge climax and now you have the depression you got people out of work hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people out of work the the dollar isn't worth the paper it's printed on and so you have these veterans of world war one and they're like hey we need money where can we get money? I know the war, the war adjusted compensation act of 1924. I served in yeah. world war one. I. I was promised money, a total of $625, which in great depression money, is a damn good find problem was technically they don't have to give it to me until 1945. Yeah. With interest, with interest, 4% interest on on your money in 1945. I was 18 now, were, in 1915. It is now 1933. I got to wait another 12 years. The average life expectancy at that time before the Depression was 65-ish, kind of what they are hoping for if these guys would pass away before they had to cut checks. But, hey, I'm going to go down to D.C., and I'm going to demand my money. And one particular, two particular guys started this from Washington State, and they started marching, and as they got p publicity through the newspaper and local radio, more and more veterans who had no jobs, losing their farms, literally losing their houses, nowhere to go. Hey, why not march with my brothers? I want my check too. And, and a lot of people say, well, you know, they, they had an agreement. They agreed to it that they would get their money in 1945. I think they seem to forget, though, is because – the, the House of Representatives ratified 
the previous agreement, the Adjustment Com- the Adjusted Compensation Act, on July 28, 1932. The Senate refused to ratify it. So therefore, when the Senate refused to ratify a House vote, it would not go, it couldn't go to the president for signature or veto. So the senators were the ones who actually screwed the veterans more than Hoover did. But Hoover didn't care because he had already said, well, look, if you if you were owed $50 or less, you've been paid. And they did pay the people who were owed 50 bucks or less. They got paid right off the bat. Bam, you're good. If you were owed more than that, then, of course, they said, well, we're going to give you 4% interest on your uh, on your money, which is going to be invested until maturation, and you can get it in 1945. But as you said, a guy in 1932 who is, uh, I mean... Living with the effects of gassing, uh, the wounds he sustained in 1915, he's also now probably in his mid to late 30s, if not early 40s, depending on the age in which he served, and now you got to wait another 12 years? And oh, by the yeah, way, as you were saying, they agreed to it. We all know when it comes to the federal government, you really don't get an opportunity to agree. It's either take what we give you or don't. That's the agreement they yeah, had. And and even though the, the act was passed a decade before, uh, in July of, of 32, it was revisited by the House of Representatives. And again, you know, it was like shut down. Well, that word spread like the measles because mm-hmm. that's when guys came from every corner of, of of the country as fast as they could and when they by the end of the of that uh, second week of july i mean the estimates say 17 to twenty five thousand people were in the area surrounding dc a lot of these people were on private property owned by a guy who said hey you can camp here it's not on federal property it's private property they can't do anything to across you. the river across the river the anacostia and uh but it didn't matter because the government was going to the government could not have 17 to 25,000 people a lot of them were civilians a lot of them were, were, were family members uh but they could not have that many people publicly demonstrating against the federal government uh in such an open way because that really makes you look stupid if you're the fed and you haven't resolved an issue and colin so, just pointed out something very important um this is the depression as i said people are losing their houses people are losing their farms so it wasn't just the vets it was their wife, his wife, their kids, because they had nowhere to go. So they're all right. heading east. It, now they're making a great migration east, starting from California. Everybody just started getting in this long march, hopping in old jalopies on donkeys, wagons, whatever form of transportation, the Heel Toe Express. And they set up these Hoovervilles all through Washington. And yeah. one of the things the documentaries like to point out, and it's very true, Despite the fact that the military was still segregated back then, despite the fact that you had all the racial tensions in certain states back then, all these bonus army camps, they were all desegregated. They were all living amongst one another Mm because they were all fighting for the same cause. At that point, color doesn't matter. it's, It's all about numbers. And so you had these camps where literally people were just black, white, didn't matter. They were all there. They all had a cause and they were all brothers and sisters and they were going to go down there and stand up and get their money. Yeah. And there were some pretty notable people there too. Smedley Butler showed up mm-hmm. and, uh, and he was really uh, sympathetic with them. And a lot of other people were there as well as you also know, uh, Douglas MacArthur, George Patton and Dwight D. Eisenhower. Well, that's we're there. That's what I wanted to point out because as a World War II podcast and a World War II 
amateur historian, a living historian, we hear about the greats, Patton, MacArthur. And then I hear this story. And not to skip ahead, so I want to tell it chronologically so we can reveal it to our audience here. What happens, they, they all start going down to putting up protest. As you were saying, it doesn't look good. And so we need to shut this down. So first and foremost, let's send over the police over to the Hoovervilles to shut these down. As you can imagine, some of them went home. If they had homes, some of them went to go find new homes. But a lot of them stayed because once again, they had nowhere to go. Now they had what property they own, you know, the a mattress or a shack set up over here. That was their house. They had nowhere to go and they needed this money. And so the police went. Rocks start getting thrown. People start getting pushed. Well, we can't have that. So let's send in the army. Now keep this in mind. You got the vets of the the war to end our war, the war, the only big war up to this point, protesting for money. And now we're not only going to send in the army, we're going to send in first gen tanks. We're going to use gas on them and infantry men equipped with bayonets and gas masks. And shut this down. And who did they send to lead this? Please, sir. <laughs> yeah, well, well, Douglas MacArthur, he was chief of staff of the Army at the time. Yep. And and he should have known better because uh, a lot of those men had served under him. And uh, the same with Patton. In fact, uh, one of the guys there was a private named Joe Angelo, who had received the, the Distinguished Service Cross for saving Patton's life in France. And he was wounded during the process. And uh, he was there. And uh, there are a lot of guys there who whose names were known. Eisenhower. They, they, well, yeah, I mean, Eisenhower, Patton, and others. But as far as the bonus army, some of the men in, the, in those ranks yes. of those thousands were people whose faces and names were well known. They were highly decorated men and, uh, and relatively famous. And so it was very, very bad. It looked very bad for the military to have these former soldiers uh, calling out the government. And then the D.C. police got involved and there was a struggle there. People got hurt. And then Hoover said, just move the army in. And and that was really a bad call, in my opinion. And Patton kind of had a little bit of sense of not self-preservation, but hierarchy preservation. He went to MacArthur and said, hey, why don't you let the a lesser known person, a lesser ranked person deal with this because you're not going to want to deal with the blowback if this thing goes south. And MacArthur's not like, I'm good. Let's let, let's let it roll. And it did blow up. Um, people did get hurt. Um, I know one woman ended up having, because not only for the audience's sake, not only did they go in and run them down, but allegedly Hoover put out the standing order, don't cross the bridge. Whether yep. he did or not, that's for history. MacArthur claims he never heard the command, uh, don't cross the bridge. He sent his guys, his tanks across the bridge. One, how or another, a fire ensued. They literally burnt down the Hoover towns. Um, one woman, according to history, suffered a miscarriage. I think a couple of children died of smoke inhalation. A couple of the vets, one or two of them did die from physical assaults. And it was just a PR disaster. 
Well, it was. I mean, the Army sent in uh, four troops of cavalry. They sent in four companies of infantry, a machine gun squadron, and six tanks. That's a lot of that's a lot of heavy metal, you know, to deal with a bunch of guys wanting a paycheck. Yeah. And 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 the one thing that uh, that really disgusts me as a historian, and I'm not a MacArthur fan. Now, I, I I'm a, I'm a fan of Patton for many reasons during World War II, but this was not his finest hour. But uh, the first thing they did, and this is funny because if you look at it today, I'll put it in, in, in a parallel Please. universe to you. They they just basically called the bonus army communists. Mm-hmm. They said, oh, they're just red agitators. They're communists. They just want to uh, stir up problems because they're not real patriotic Americans. So, yeah, you can go put your bayonets in them. Because they deal. don't want to deal with their own problems. They're looking for a quote-unquote handout. Even though that right. handout was a promise for their service to the world, which ironically, those three NCOs who were there would later be part of the military that came home with the same, you know, our World War II vets. They got a bonus, if you will. They They got, you know, home loans offered to them. I mean, it wasn't the same, but it wasn't that much different. So it's just funny how when it comes to that generation, all oh, it's things suck right now. They're wanting a handout, but it's just interesting how history plays out over time. Well, if you look at it in context, if you look at it much like uh, the bank bailouts, look at the bank bailouts under under uh, Obama, right? Yep. The savings loan bank bailouts. The CEOs and the major shareholders officers of those institutions that lost billions and of course lost 401ks i I lost investments Mm -hmm. uh the people who were responsible were not held responsible yep barney frank much like hoover barney frank lied to the american public and lied on bill o'reilly's show i watched the episode he lied to congress when he was in congress at the time and he said, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are solvent. There's no reason to worry about anything. Keep investing your money. At the same time he was telling that lie, he and his boyfriend were selling every stock share they had. Yep. Okay. And then when it went bust, he's sitting fat and happy and everybody else paid the price for it. But there was no accountability. Well, just like with the bonus army, there was no accountability. What they had to do to justify the action was label these people communists, agitators, anti-Americans, this, that, and the other. None of it was true. You know, for the most part, but they had to create. Well, they had to create the false narrative. It's just like today. Today, the liberals, I call them the the progressive Marxists. They uh, they have to create new crimes to try Trump Trump with because they can't risk having him get back in power because now he knows where the bodies are buried and how to dig them up. So he knows how to take care of problems better now than when he was in the first time around, which is a very good presidency, by the way. Uh, well, let, but let's, Hoover, let's pause real quick because you you brought up a good thing, uh, a good point. Two thousand eight. Guess who were still alive during two thousand eight? A lot of people who were children during the Great Depression, my grandmother included. My grandfather passed away a few years prior. He was a World War II vet. He did grave registration over in Europe. Um, he was an Eastern Kentucky coal miner. Prior to the war, he got tired of living that lifestyle, working for government, you know, shit, they called it. Basically, you're living and dying for your coal mine. He moved to northern Kentucky outside of Covington, went to work at a dairy farm that 
Turns out my grandmother's father owned. The two met. They got married. During the Great Depression, her family basically lost all their liquid assets. They had property in this dairy farm. Because they lived outside of Cincinnati and family members, fast forward to 2008, the crash happened. My grandmother lost all the early stock that she had in Procter & Gamble, which was out of Cincinnati, that her family had gained, much like the old janitors you hear about who worked for Microsoft. They didn't get health insurance. They got stock in Microsoft. Well, my family had, she had stock in Procter and & Gamble and all these other Cincinnati-based companies. All that went away. And luckily, mm -hmm. she had a little bit of land that she had yet to sell because basically my grandfather and her, through the retirement years, just started selling off old family parcels. But 2008 came. She lost everything, just like everybody else. And so here's a woman mm -hmm. that was a child during the Great Depression, lived through World War II. Um, family pretty much lost everything the first time around. And what wasn't lost during the Great Depression and that was actually able to be recouped post-World War II was just lost in 2008. And that happened to a lot of people from that generation. And so it's like yeah. they got stuck to them twice through bad uh, bad government management. Well, yeah, but the thing was the government took care of the people who made the money and lost the money, yeah. but they didn't take care of the people who paid the heaviest price for it. And that's, that's the biggest reason why I, I back in 2008, 2009, I was really angry with my university that I was teaching for because they were wanting to do a few things that I was uncomfortable with. And they wanted to, in 2007, in January 2007, uh, one of the professors there, who I shall keep nameless at the moment, sure. uh, rang the, the bell opening up the IPO for American Military University. Okay. And they began selling shares. So I found it quite interesting that as soon as the university went public, they wanted me to reduce the quality criteria with regard to passing my students on honors violations in particular, because now that they had shareholders and uh, it was a public company, if I fire, if I, if I failed students who didn't muster, you know, to the cause and do the job or, or, or plagiarized or did something like that, every student I failed meant there was not an income coming in. Yeah, my better half's a fourth grade teacher, and well, she's second grade now. She's fourth grade for years, and she's seeing now de teaching the second graders the push them along mentality through COVID. No one failed mm -hmm. during COVID. No one failed post COVID. It was just everybody got a passing grade, and now you know, and that you know, right after COVID, a year or two, you know, a year after COVID, she's dealing with fourth graders who could barely read but now she's seeing second graders have absolutely no fundamentals and it's the mm -hmm. same way we're not going to fail them because if we fail them we don't have room for new students and each student has a value associated with them because we get government funding per student and it's just a shit show well that's the reason why the public school systems and the teachers unions don't like charter schools or private schools and you know you think about it i know so many people i have two friends uh, sam and uh, Ken, uh Kevin and Sam Sorbo, you, you know, people will know him from Hercules and yep. other movies. But Kevin and Sam have homeschooled their kids, and she's a great advocate of homeschooling with, you know, the proper preparation. And, and I just finished producing and editing a uh, and uh, a series, two series for educational video series for children for homeschooling projects. And it may go to public school. I don't know. But the teachers unions are so against educating kids because 
if they if they actually did their job, they wouldn't have enough time to beg, lobby, and promote politicians and lobby for these people who basically do their political bidding. And I think laziness has crept into it, not just Marxism. Marxism has always been a part of it since the 60s. But laziness, abject intellectual bankruptcy has crept into the educational process. And no one, and if you challenge the school system, if you challenge the teachers, holy hell, now you've got Biden's FBI and Ray and Merrick Garland wanting to label you a domestic terrorist because you're not playing along with the program. Well, just to be fair real quick, because I I live in South Florida. I live in Florida. Things are a little bit different down here. And I do got to I completely agree with you because most of those stories come out of the bigger cities. The sad thing is, is when we talk like that all the time, people just assume all schools are like that, which clearly they're not. And to that point, the, the reason Lee County here in Southwest Florida, the reason they were able to handle the pandemic so well is they had already adopted homeschooling. Obviously, their intent is to have students in school, but Lee County already had a homeschooling curriculum available for those who wanted to homeschool their kids. And so when the pandemic came along, all they had to do was create more username and passwords for this online curriculum that already existed, replicate it to a few more servers to handle the server load, whereas these bigger cities that were fighting it, they didn't have this cyber curriculum prepared mm-hmm. and so they floundered whereas lee county's like well we already have a cyber curriculum out there we've been offering it to these parents who want to homeschool so all we got to do now is make username and passwords for all of our normal you know our in-school kids give them chromebooks and you know start telling the teachers you know here's a google classroom account and that's how we were able to transition and so it didn't we didn't have the gap that a lot of districts had throughout the 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 country especially in the larger cities who had been fighting that but back to the the point at hand so now you have the basically almost a i wouldn't say a civil war but the fact that you have all those troops tanks against guys who have rocks and some wool caps and maybe a, a fedora here and there and maybe a two by four the blood the fallout was so bad that it was perfect timing for the fdr campaign Everybody, everybody's already at wit's end with Hoover. Hoover's claiming he told him not to go across the bridge. It's not my fault. Whatever. Now, campaign's coming up. He loses the election. And now, you- yeah, he lost. He lost the election big time because nobody, everybody, everybody blamed Hoover for the Great Depression. Yeah, they blamed and Hooverville. Hoover. <laughs> yeah, and the Hoovervilles, right? And the homeless situation, unemployment. Everyone blamed Hoover. And, and and in most cases, I would say, it's not really intellectually honest to blame one man sure. for all the problems. But Hoover has a lion's share of the responsibility for that. Hold on, let me pause. I laughed when he said lion's share because I grew up in the 90s. And I was getting ready to say, one thing we all learned from the Lion King, quote, the first rule of management, everything's your fault. And so I was thinking that in my head and you said the lion's share. And when you're... When you're the head, you're you're the the poster boy. You're the face of the policy. What you know? True. It's not. It's it's naive to blame it on one person. But in that in those sort of situations, someone is going to fall on a sword, and it's going to be him. Well, that's true. And also, you can also put a lot of blame on Woodrow Wilson setting it up when he created the Federal Reserve. Yes. And that didn't. That hasn't helped the country. No. Who in the hell? Who in the hell? Would I mean? Germany. He basically created a central bank. Yep. 
a central bank in Germany. And that central bank controlled every aspect of cash. Okay. And in Germany, they, they didn't have a credit economy until Hitler came along. Then he created a credit economy. People could buy a new Volkswagen in 1935 made by Ferdinand and Porsche. You know, if you had Wolfsburg, a job, 10% down, you, you could finance a car, you could finance a house, you could have a mortgage. Okay, that's fine. But the difference was that under Hitler's regime, you didn't have unemployment. If you didn't want a job, he built a place called Dachau. We'll re-educate you. Mm -hmm. Okay. And we had massive unemployment in this country that was crippling us. And then, of course, FDR tried to resolve that issue when he got elected with his Tennessee Valley Authority and all of his other projects. But Hoover w was was to blame for a lot of that because he allowed that to happen. He could have he could have taken his foot off the neck of, in, of of business, and he could have actually taken more control over how business was being conducted. But he decided to side along with the the stockbrokers and and the magnates, and it and it just collapsed. It burned around him. And so FDR gets in. He comes up with his new deal. He creates all these works programs. And as we were saying earlier, during the bonus army march, you had certain people who didn't like the idea that you had veterans and citizens asking for money for services previously rendered. And so now you have these large... I own a business for 18 years. I'm a capitalist. But I'm also understand that you have capitalists and then you have crony capitalists and they are not under the same tent. And in this case, yeah. you had crony capitalists. And we're talking about just put the word big in front of anything. And that's who these guys were. And they did not like what they were seeing with FDR and all these government works programs because it's going to take money away from their pockets. And so they started seeing FDR is clearly a socialist. He's a communist. Mm -hmm. And about five or six of these fellows got together and said, we need to come up with a, a, a plan. We need to figure out what we can do. And as we've heard since 2008, and again, 2015 and recently, there's a group of people who live by the saying, don't let a good catastrophe go to waste. Uh, they're, yeah, they're called Democrats. And so we have this fiasco happen against 20, 30. How many veterans were there, the Bonus Army March? Uh, between 17,000 and 25,000 people, of which about 17,500 were actual veterans, is estimated. And there was a gentleman who was speaking at this march, Mr. Mm -hmm. General Snedley Butler. Yep, Lieutenant General Snedley Butler who already at this time had retired from the Marine Corps, one of the most decorated Marines, but at this time he was no longer restrained by the decorum of the Marine Corps, and so he was making rounds about his distaste and his resentment for how he was used in his mind to protect corporate interests throughout the world during the Banana Wars, uh, the mm -hmm. Panama, you know, the fights down in, around Panama during the Panama, Panama Canal, some of the other South American um, wars that went on or battles. And so he was kind of on a speaking tour, you know, not happy with the way the wind was blowing. And so you had these crony capitalists that said, hmm, 
we got a bunch of resentful war veterans who have military training who just had their ass handed to them by the current administration and current army. We know they're upset. They're resentful. They're probably looking for revenge. We got this guy that they would all clearly stand behind and fight for who, at least publicly, as far as we know, has shown distrust for the government and disdain for the government. And they greatly miscalculated that step. But this plan was put together by these crony capitalists and it was an audacious one and so they sent a proxy down to talk to mr butler and if you could pick it up from there yeah there were several people who actually had a meeting with him and what they wanted to do and by the way the ringleader of this was a fellow by the name of prescott bush sounds familiar Uh, most people i'll make the connection for them he was the father of george H.W. Bush and the grandfather of George Bush and his brothers. And Prescott Bush basically coordinated with some other very interesting and influential bankers and industrialists because they saw that FDR's New Deal operation, as you said, big business could hardly ever compete with the federal government when it came to paying wages. Okay. If the government wanted to, you know, spend like tax and spend like FDR did, then it'd be very hard to get those workers and pay them the wages and make a profit. FDR wasn't worried about making a profit. He was worried about making a political lifeline for himself. And Prescott Bush organized this coup d'etat to basically effectively, forcibly remove FDR from office and replace him with a more compliant person to be chosen at a later date, although some names were bounced around. Smedley Butler was recruited to lead all the veterans that he could find. And at that time, there were about 100,000 veterans who had been signed on to this thing. And they be- they believed that Smedley Butler would lead them down Pennsylvania Avenue, go in there, grab Roosevelt, put him in jail or whatever he had to do, and then reinstate a new president that would be more compliant to free market capitalism, or as you say, crony capitalism. But- and uh, Smedley-, Smedley Butler refused. He said, look, I may not like the government and I may not like the way the government handles foreign policy. And I don't like the way that we get thrown into the meat grinder so you guys can make money. But I swore an oath to the Constitution. The Constitution says that this is called treason and I'm not going to be a part of it. Yeah. And so you had the community for the sound dollar. These are the guys who wanted the the restoration of the gold standard. They were kind of involved, but they knew that they couldn't just say, hey, Smedley, we're going to throw you in there and give you power. They, they kind of had to lay the groundworks for a, a fake position. And so what they offered them is, hey, mm-hmm. we're going to make you the Secretary of General Affairs. Nice nice nameplate you can put on your desk. But as you, as you said, despite his distrust for the, the jobs that he had to do in South America, and in his words, be the police for American interest, I think one of the things that Smedley Butler was able to do, which a lot of people are unable to do, particularly nowadays, is disassociate America, Americans, the Constitution, and the federal government. America and Americans, we have our own flag. It's called the American flag. And this is one of the things that annoyed me to hell and back when I saw all the flags getting burnt during all the protests. It's like, you understand the United States government has their own flag. If you have, or this, you know, the police force that you're protesting against, or the city capital you're pro, 
all these organizations have their own flags, but you're burning the flag that represents us, the people. Perhaps go buy a different flag to show your disdain towards the correct people that you're angry at. But no, people tend to associate all in one. And Butler's like, no, I'm not happy with the current government. I'm not happy with the government that was involved when I was in the Marine Corps leading these operations. But I truly understand what the foundation of the country is, what the people are. And the experiment that if we get involved, we can change how things operate. And so, no, I'm not going to go about this in a a legal, treasonous way. I'm going to go about it the legal way, which is speak up, speak out, and change things through voting and election, not a coup d'etat and an overthrowing of the government. I've already seen that enough in other countries. I'm not going to be part of it. And that's where they completely miscalculated him. They just see... And here, the radio clips of him, the newspaper articles of the, you know, the the Marine who's angry against the government, and they completely miscalculated him. Well, not only that, they turned on him. And what they did was he wrote his book, as you know, War is a Racket. And what they tried to do was claim that Smedley Butler was the instigator trying to promote this overthrow and all this other stuff. Then they then he proved that was a lie. And then when he called out by name every single person involved who was well known back then in the business world. That, that he he went in front he went in front of Congress, and they wanted to shut him down, you know, and and he had the proof, he had the evidence, and they they still shut him down, and uh, so yeah, it, it was a, it was a very bad time and in modern for day, the country. And in modern day equivalency, it would be like Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, uh, Elon Musk, Kevin, uh, the guy from Twitter. It would have been like them all trying to overthrow the president. And then when it comes to light, not only did they slander and besmirch Smiley's reputation, but magically, nothing happened to any of them. Not even brought up on a single charge. Just yeah. After I was like, oh, yeah, they whatever. Could, they I could have been. I need their help to to get things moving here. So no harm, no foul. Well, there was a deal made. It was kind of like this. I mean, uh, Harry Hopkins got involved, of course. But uh, it was like, well, we could try you for sed- we could have you arrested for sedition and conspiracy to overthrow the government, or you can handsomely help me with my projects, and uh, and we'll just let you know let bygones be bygones. So one hand washed the other until it was rubbed raw, and <laughs> they, they got along and got along, you know. Well, there was one loose end. I forget the gentleman's name. Um, if you guys want to see this in a easily consumed, entertaining format, there is a movie put out, which surprisingly no one really heard of. I didn't see it until streaming. It was called um, Amsterdam. And mm-hmm. it, it features Christian Bale, Margot Robbie, John David Washington, uh, David Russell, a handful of people. Once again, the three main characters are made up. But an interesting fact about that is is uh, oh, Christian Bale plays a World War II, I mean, World War I vet who was a doctor. And post-war, he is helping to, and this is kind of cool where they, they include history. It really had nothing to do with the story, but it's still history and it's important. And that was the increase of interest and development and um, I, the word I'm looking for, in plastic surgery, plastic surgery went from right. a new 
a new technology to leaps and bounds with all the work that these World War I vets had to do. And Christian Bale's character in the movie, he was a doctor that was helping guys, you know, get plastic surgery and all that. But interestingly enough, they pretty much changed all the characters' names in that movie, except for the one guy who was the proxy between what they called the uh, the Circle of the Five in the movie and Robert De Niro's character, who was playing the general. They didn't call him Smedley Butler, but it's interesting. They actually have him giving that same speech in front of the Marine Corps logo that Butler did, word for word, and it's clearly based on it. But the one character in the movie they didn't change, I forget his name, was the guy who kept going to Butler that was going overseas talking to these people. And so when this thing was all wrapped up in a nice pretty little bow, he was the one loose end. But interestingly enough, he died of natural causes at 32. (laughs) The one guy who was sent to broker the deal, I wish I could remember his name, he's the one guy who just up and died of natural causes at 32, which is, well, there you go. We got rid of, and he too was a World War One vet. Yeah, government, uh, you're going to make people turn into conspiracy theorists. You keep talking like that, or this will just <laughs> this live stream will get kicked off of YouTube. But that's another story for another time. Speaking of which, for those of you watching this, I know I put out a video last Saturday. Henry Sledge reacts to HBO's The Pacific. Took me 13 edits to get it through copyright on YouTube which I don't know why there's so many videos. The video was up for a total of 18 hours, had 524 views, and then was taken down by YouTube for copyright, even though I already submitted it 13 times until they approved it. So if, you head over to, so if you're looking for it on YouTube, you're not going to find it. But head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. You can see it because, imagine that, Rumble doesn't care. It's still up on Rumble, and it's up on Utah Gun Exchange, YouTube. And so the video is still there. We're still going to work on a part two. I really wish we could have got up on YouTube because that's where most of y'all watch us, but it's not on YouTube. For whatever reason, after 18 hours, they decided, nah, we're good, and they took it down. But if you want to see the video where Henry reacts to the first five episodes, not every, you know, we just pick selected clips of his father and how they portrayed him in the miniseries, and Henry talks about it. If you want to see that clip, head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com, and then obviously when we get part two up, um, we'll let you all know. Please head over to uh, WTSPWorldWar2.com. Click on a Patreon link. Sign up and subscribe. Go a long way to help us what we're doing here over at the channel. And um, I understand, speaking of depression, you know, we're kind of living through it again. I understand money's tight. Times are hard. And so if that doesn't work for you and you still want to support us, just simply go watch some of our YouTube videos. Go watch What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, um, some of our other podcasts or fishing content and all that. You can help us out that way. And we hope you guys found interesting the story of the business plan and the craziness. I was completely shocked, to be honest with you, Colin. When, I, when I'm watching the, the documentary about the bonus army and then how it broke down, and then, oh, yeah, that was MacArthur, Patton, and Eisenhower. It's like, as a World War II aficionado, those are like the three names that we're supposed to shine a spotlight on. And you're like... <sighs> I would have loved to have been to fly on the wall at the end of World War II when these names are now in all the newspapers and shine up. I would have loved to have gone to like a, a VFW and talked to some World War I vets who got ran out of D.C. by these three guys and just said, so uh, how do you feel about this? Because I was completely shocked. I was just, I was dumbfounded. Like, they did what? And when 
you're reading World War II books and World War II documentaries, you would never think that MacArthur and Patton would have been walking over a bridge in Washington, D.C. with tanks and men with gas and bayonets setting fire to a camp of World War I veterans. Yeah, and I, I break it down this way. Eisenhower really didn't have that much involvement. Uh, he was the adjutant, you know, and MacArthur was in charge, and MacArthur issued his orders, which he said came from the president. So, and Patton followed his orders. Yeah. Now, back in those days, we didn't have we didn't have what we call the code of conduct, yeah. where you you can lawfully disobey an unlawful order. So, was it a lawful order or was it an unlawful order? That's up for legal debate. But MacArthur led it. Patton led his guys, you know, and. MacArthur gave out the word that, hey, these are all communist agitators. A lot of these guys aren't even real veterans. They're just here to stir up trouble. Well, yes. At the expense of your career, you could have done the right thing. But in yeah. order to maintain your trajectory with promotion and maintaining your career, you follow your orders. Okay? Yeah, and, the, and I guess you got to take in the fact that they didn't know how far this was going to go. In their mind, they're protecting the capital. Well, that was the thing. The whole the whole purpose of the exercise was protect the capital from encroachment. Yep. You know, don't let the violence spread beyond this area. The D.C. police already had their collective asses handed to them. Yep. And the army had to step in to back them up and because they were not capable. They weren't they didn't have the manpower or the equipment. So really, I, I, I blame I blame all of that on Hoover. Oh, I do, too. I wasn't blaming it on those three, but I was surprised to see those three name associated with that event. It was just like, wow, I never I never knew that. Never saw that coming. And never once it came up in all my books, all my reading on World War II that that was even a thing. So I was one of one of the things that came out of that. And it's not been verified by written documentation, but it's been stated verbally by other people was that Hoover when he gave his order, he said that he had intelligence that there was going to be an assault upon the Capitol. Yeah. The communist insurgency was going to attack Washington, D.C., and it was going to be utter mayhem. Yeah, and because you, you got, got 20,000 people. Yeah, one thing we forgot to mention is the, the decision whether or not they were going to preemptively give them their bonus money went to a vote. And much like politicians do, they waited till midnight, they voted no, they all snuck out back. And so all these protesters out front really thought, okay, they're voting on it, here's our chance. And then they found out at midnight they voted no and snuck out of the back. That's when the anger. And so now you have the D.C. police, the authority saying, well, these guys are completely upset that we voted no. There's a good chance we have intelligence that they're going to do something about it, and so we need to act. Yeah, and it, it it was overkill in my opinion. And by Absolutely. the way, it was even established by the army and the government that there were no large numbers of most of those men did not have firearms. They didn't have weapons. They didn't come with weapons. There were a few who had weapons, but I mean it was but out of seventeen thousand guys, if seventeen thousand guys had long guns and pistols, then that would have been one hell of a bloodbath. But they weren't armed, and it would—it really wasn't overkill. All they had to do, in my opinion, was set up some barricades and just starve them out. That's all they had to do. And I think that's just a good note to wrap it up on. I want to thank Mr. 
Colin D. Heaton for coming on. And um, thank you guys so much. We will come back with you all next week for another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. Real quick before we go, where can people find you on social media? Well, I have a Facebook page that my one of my publishers suggested I create a few years ago. I have a Facebook page. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on IMDb. Uh, and I am also on YouTube with the Forgotten History Channel. And on that, we will talk to you all next week. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>